Section two of the Evil Guest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Evil Guest by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Section two. Had Ethereal touched with his spear the beautiful young woman, thus for a moment, as it seemed, lost in a trance of gratitude and love, would that angelic form have stood the test unscathed? A spectator, marking the scene, might have observed a strange gleam in her eyes, a strange expression in her face, an influence for a moment not angelic, like a shadow of some passing spirit, cross her visibly, as she leaned over the gentle lady's neck and murmured, "'Dear madame, how happy, how very happy you make me!' Such a spectator, as he looked at that gentle lady, might have seen, for one dreamy moment, a lithe and painted serpent, coiled round and round and hissing in her ear. A few minutes more, and Mademoiselle was in the solitude of her own apartment. She shut and bolted the door, and taking from her desk the letter which she had that morning received, threw herself into an armchair, and studied the document profoundly. Her actual revision and scrutiny of the letter itself was interrupted by long intervals of profound abstraction, and after a full hour thus spent, she locked it carefully up again, and with a clear brow and a gay smile rejoined her pretty pupil for a walk. We must now pass over an interval of a few days, and come at once to the arrival of Sir Winston Berkeley, which duly occurred upon the evening of the day appointed. The baronet descended from his chaise but a short time before the hour at which the little party, which formed the family at Grey Forest, were wont to assemble for the social meal of supper. A few minutes devoted to the mysteries of the toilet, with the aid of an accomplished valet, enabled him to appear, as he conceived, without disadvantage at this domestic reunion. Sir Winston Berkeley was a particularly gentlemanlike person. He was rather tall and elegantly made, with gay, easy manners, and something indefinably aristocratic in his face, which, however, was a little more worn than his years would have strictly accounted for. But Sir Winston had been a roué, and in spite of the cleverest possible making up, the ravages of excess were very traceable in the lively beau of fifty. Perfectly well-dressed, and with a manner that was ease and gaiety itself, he was at home from the moment he entered the room. Of course anything like genuine cordiality was out of the question, but Mr. Marston embraced his relative with perfect good breeding, and the baronet appeared determined to like everybody, and to be pleased with everything. He had not been five minutes in the parlour, chatting gaily with Mr. and Mrs. Marston and their pretty daughter, when Mademoiselle de Barras entered the room. As she moved towards Mrs. Marston, Sir Winston rose, and, observing her with evident admiration, said in an undertone inquiringly to Marston, who was beside him, "'And this?' that is mademoiselle de barras my daughter's governess and mrs marston's companion said marston dryly ha said sir winston i thought you were but three at home just now and i was right your son is at cambridge i heard so from our old friend jack manbury jack has his boy there too egad dick it seems but last week that you and i were there together yes said marston looking gloomily into the fire as if he saw in its smoke and flicker the phantoms of murdered time and opportunity but i hate looking back winston the past is to me but a medley of ill luck and worse management why what an ungrateful dog you are returned sir winston gaily turning his back upon the fire and glancing round the spacious and handsome though somewhat faded apartment i was on the point of congratulating you on the possession of the finest park and noblest domain in cheshire when you begin to grumble egad dick all i can say to your complaint is that i don't pity you and there are dozens who may honestly envy you that is all in spite of this cheering assurance marston remained sullenly silent supper however had now been served and the little party assumed their places at the table 
"'I am sorry, Winston. I have no sport of any kind to offer you here,' said Marston, "'except, indeed, some good trout-fishing, if you like it. I have three miles of excellent fishing at your command.' "'My dear fellow, I am a mere cockney,' rejoined Sir Winston. "'I am not a sportsman. I never tried it, and should not like to begin now. No, Dick, what I much prefer is abundance of your fresh air and the enjoyment of your scenery. When I was at Rouen three years ago—' "'Ah! Rouen! Mademoiselle will feel an interest in that. It is her birthplace,' interrupted Marston, glancing at the Frenchwoman. "'Yes, Rouen, ah, yes,' said Mademoiselle, with very evident embarrassment." Sir Winston appeared for a moment a little disconcerted too, but rallied speedily, and pursued his detail of his doings at that fair town of Normandy. Marston knew Sir Winston well, and he rightly calculated that whatever effect his experience of the world might have had in intensifying his selfishness or hardening his heart, it certainly could have had none in improving a character originally worthless and unfeeling. He knew, moreover, that his wealthy cousin was gifted with a great deal of that small cunning which is available for masking the little scheming of frivolous and worldly men, and that Sir Winston never took trouble of any kind without a sufficient purpose, having its centre in his own personal gratification. This visit greatly puzzled Marston. It gave him even a vague sense of uneasiness. Could there exist any flaw in his own title to the estate of Grey Forest? He had an unpleasant, doubtful sort of remembrance of some apprehensions of this kind when he was but a child, having been whispered in the family. Could this really be so, and could the baronet have been led to make this unexpected visit merely for the purpose of personally examining into the condition or a property of which he was about to become the legal invader? The nature of this suspicion affords, at all events, a fair gauge of Marston's estimate of his cousin's character and as he revolved these doubts from time to time, and as he thought of Mademoiselle de Barras's transient but unaccountable embarrassment at the mention of Rouen by Sir Winston, an embarrassment which the baronet himself appeared for a moment to reciprocate, undefined, glimmering suspicions of another kind flickered through the darkness of his mind. He was effectually puzzled, his surmises and conjectures baffled, and he more than half repented that he had acceded to his cousin's proposal, and admitted him as an inmate of his house. Although Sir Winston comported himself as if he were conscious of being the very most welcome visitor who could possibly have established himself at Grey Forest, he was, doubtless, fully aware of the real feelings with which he was regarded by his host. If he had in reality an object in prolonging his stay, and wished to make the postponement of his departure the direct interest of his entertainer, he unquestionably took effectual measures for that purpose. The little party broke up every evening at about ten o'clock, and Sir Winston retired to his chamber at the same hour. He found little difficulty in inducing Marston to amuse him there with a quiet game of piquet. In his own room, therefore, in the luxurious ease of dressing-gown and slippers, he sat at cards with his host, often until an hour or two past midnight. Sir Winston was exorbitantly wealthy, and very reckless in expenditure. The stakes for which they played, although they gradually became in reality pretty heavy, were in his eyes a very unimportant consideration. Marston, on the other hand, was poor, and played with the eye of a lynx and the appetite of a shark. The ease and perfect good humour with which Sir Winston lost were not unimproved by his entertainer, who, as may readily be supposed, was not sorry to reap this golden harvest, provided without the slightest sacrifice on his part of pride or independence. If, indeed, he sometimes suspected that his guest was a little more anxious to lose than to win, he was also quite resolved not to perceive it, but calmly persisted in, night after night, giving Sir Winston, as he termed it, his revenge, or, in other words, treating him to a repetition of his losses. 
All this was very agreeable to Marston, who began to treat his visitor with, at all events, more external cordiality and distinction than at first. An incident, however, occurred which disturbed these amicable relations in an unexpected way. It becomes necessary here to mention that Mademoiselle de Barras's sleeping apartment opened from a long corridor. It was en suite with two dressing-rooms, each opening also upon a corridor, but wholly unused and unfurnished. Some five or six other apartments also opened at either side, upon the same passage. These little local details being premised, it so happened that one day Marston, who had gone out with the intention of angling in the trout-stream which flowed through his park, though at a considerable distance from the house, having unexpectedly returned to procure some tackle which he had forgotten, was walking briskly through the corridor in question to his own apartment, when, to his surprise, the door of one of the deserted dressing-rooms, of which we have spoken, was cautiously pushed open, and Sir Winston Berkeley issued from it. Marston was almost beside him as he did so, and Sir Winston made a motion as if about instinctively to draw back again, and at the same time the keen ear of his host distinctly caught the sound of rustling silks, and a tiptoe tread hastily withdrawing from the deserted chamber. Sir Winston looked nearly as much confused as a man of the world can look. Marston stopped short, and scanned his visitor for a moment with a peculiar expression. "'You have caught me peeping, Dick. I'm an inveterate explorer,' said the baronet, with an effectual effort to shake off his embarrassment. "'An open door in a fine old house is a temptation which—' "'That door is usually closed, and ought to be kept so,' interrupted Marston dryly. "'There is nothing whatever to be seen in the room but dust and cobwebs.' "'Pardon me,' said Sir Winston more easily. "'You forget the view from the window.' "'Aye, the view, to be sure.' "'There is a good view from it,' said Marston, with as much of his usual manner as he could resume so soon, and at the same time, carelessly opening the door again, he walked in, accompanied by Sir Winston, and both stood at the window together, looking out in silence upon a prospect which neither of them saw. "'Yes, I do think it is a good view,' said Marston, and as he turned carelessly away, he darted a swift glance round the chamber. The door opening toward the French lady's apartment was closed, but not actually shut.' this was enough and as they left the room marston repeated his invitation to his guest to accompany him but in a tone which showed that he scarcely followed the meaning of what he himself was saying he walked undecidedly toward his own room then turned and went downstairs in the hall he met his pretty child ah rhoda said he you have not been out to-day no papa but it is so very fine i think i shall go now yes go and mademoiselle can accompany you do you hear rhoda mademoiselle goes with you and you had better go at once a few minutes more and marston from the parlour window beheld rhoda and the elegant french girl walking together towards the woodlands he watched them gloomily himself unseen until the crowding underwood concealed their receding figures then with a sigh he turned and reascended the great staircase I shall sift this mystery to the bottom, thought he. I shall foil the conspirators, if so they be, with their own weapons. Art with art, chicane with chicane, duplicity with duplicity. He was now in the long passage, which we have just spoken of, and glancing back and before him, to ascertain that no chance eye discerned him, he boldly entered Mademoiselle's chamber. Her writing-desk lay upon the table. It was locked, and coolly taking it in his hands, Marston carried it into his own room, bolted his chamber door, and taking two or three bunches of keys, he carefully tried nearly a dozen in succession, and when almost despairing of success, at last found one which fitted the lock, turned and opened the desk. Sustained throughout his dishonourable task by some strong and angry passion, the sight of the open escritoire checked and startled him for a moment. Violated privilege, invaded secrecy, 
base perfidious espionage upbraided and stigmatized him as the intricacies of the outraged sanctuary opened upon his intrusive gaze he felt for a moment shocked and humbled he was impelled to lock and replace the desk where he had originally found it without having effected his meditated treason but this hesitation was transient the fiery and reckless impulse which had urged him to the act returned to enforce its consummation with a guilty eye and eager hands he searched the contents of this tiny repository of the fair norman's written secrets ha the very thing he muttered as he detected the identical letter which he himself had handed to mademoiselle de barras but a few days before the handwriting struck me ill disguised i thought i knew it we shall see he had opened the letter it contained but a few lines he held his breath while he read it first he grew pale then a shadow came over his face and then another and another darker and darker shade upon shade as if an exhalation from the pit was momentarily blacking the air about him he said nothing there was but one long gentle sigh and in his face a mortal sternness as he folded the letter again replaced it and locked the desk of course when mademoiselle de barras returned from her accustomed walk she found everything in her room to all appearances undisturbed and just as when she left it while this young lady was making her toilet for the evening and while sir winston berkeley was worrying himself with conjectures as to whether marston's evil looks when he encountered him that morning in the passage existed only in his fancy or were in good truth very grim and significant realities marston himself was striding alone through the wildest and darkest solitudes of his park haunted by his own unholy thoughts and it may be by those other evil and unearthly influences which wander as we know in desert places darkness overtook him and the chill of night in these lonely tracts in his solitary walk what fearful company had he been keeping as the shades of night deepened round him the sense of the neighbourhood of ill the consciousness of the foul fancies or which where he was now treading he had been for hours the sport oppressed him with a vague and unknown terror a certain horror of the thoughts which had been his comrades through the day which he could not now shake off and which haunted him with a ghastly and defiant pertinacity scared while they half enraged him he stalked swiftly homewards like a guilty man pursued marston was not perfectly satisfied though very nearly with the evidence now in his possession the letter the stolen perusal of which had so agitated him that day bore no signature but independently of the handwriting which seemed spite of the constraint of an attempted disguise to be familiar to his eye there existed in the matter of the letter short as it was certain internal evidences which although not actually conclusive raised in conjunction with all the other circumstances a powerful presumption in aid of his suspicions he resolved however to sift the matter further and to bide his time meanwhile his manner must indicate no trace of his dark surmises and bitter thoughts deception in its two great branches simulation and dissimulation was easy to him his habitual reserve and gloom would divest any accidental and momentary disclosure of his inward trouble of everything suspicious or unaccountable which would have characterized such displays and eccentricities in another man his rapid and reckless ramble a kind of physical vent for the paroxysm which had so agitated him throughout the greater part of the day had soiled and disordered his dress and thus had helped to give to his whole appearance a certain air of haggard wildness which in the privacy of his chamber he hastened carefully and entirely to remove at supper marston was apparently in unusually good spirits sir winston and he chatted gaily and fluently upon many subjects grave and gay 
among them the inexhaustible topic of popular superstition happened to turn up and especially the subject of strange prophecies of the fates and fortunes of individuals singularly fulfilled in the events of their after-life by the by dick this is rather a nervous topic for me to discuss said sir winston how so asked his host why don't you remember urged the baronet no i don't recollect what you allude to replied marston in all sincerity why don't you remember eton pursued sir winston yes to be sure said marston well continued his visitor well i really don't recollect the prophecy replied marston what do you forget the gypsy who predicted that you were to murder me dick eh ah ha ha laughed marston with a start don't you remember it now urged his companion ah oh, why yes i believe i do said marston but another prophecy was running in my mind a gypsy prediction too at ascot do you recollect the girl told me i was to be lord chancellor of england and a duke besides well dick rejoined sir winston merrily if both are to be fulfilled or neither i trust you may never sit upon the woolsack of england the party soon after broke up sir winston and his host as usual to pass some hours at piquet and mrs marston as was her wont to spend some time in her own boudoir over notes and accounts and the worrying details of housekeeping while thus engaged she was disturbed by a respectful tap at her door and an elderly servant who had been for many years in the employment of mr marston presented himself well merton do you want anything asked the lady yes ma'am please i want to give warning i wish to leave the service ma'am replied he respectfully but doggedly to leave us merton echoed his mistress both surprised and sorry for the man who had been long her servant and had been much liked and trusted yes ma'am he repeated and why do you wish to do so merton has anything occurred to make the place unpleasant to you urged the lady no ma'am no indeed said he earnestly i have nothing to complain of nothing indeed ma'am perhaps you think you can do better if you leave us suggested his mistress no indeed ma'am i have no such thought he said and seemed on the point of bursting into tears but but somehow ma'am there is something come over me lately and i can't help but think if i stay here ma'am some some misfortune will happen to us all and that is the truth ma'am this is very foolish merton a mere childish fancy replied mrs marston you like your place and you have no better prospect before you and now for a mere superstitious fancy you propose giving it up and leaving us no no merton you had better think the matter over and if you still upon reflection prefer going away you can then speak to your master thank you ma'am god bless you said the man withdrawing End of section two.